Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension podcast, Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, and today's guest will be Tom Hoverstead from the University of Minnesota Southern Research and Outreach Center at Wasika. And before we bring Tom in, we wanted to talk a little bit about our crop weather report uh, that came out last Friday. Things have been progressing very well in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we know that our corn, in terms of crop condition, uh, was rated as 20% fair, 62% good, and actually just 15% excellent. Uh, soybeans were similar. Uh, they rated at, uh, as of last uh, Friday, 18% fair. However, 67% were rated as good and uh, 12% as excellent. Uh, we made a lot of progress in planting. Corn reached over 98% complete with uh, a crop emergence at 88%. Soybeans planting was at 94% complete uh, with um, compared to the five-year average and ahead of that, and soybean emergence rated uh, 74%. But probably the most interesting thing, I think, and we'll talk a little bit more about that with Tom, is our soil moisture situations and some concerns over that. Topsoil moisture was rated at 29% short, 61% adequate, and just 5% surplus. Subsoil moisture supplies, however, were just 4% very short and 24% rated as short and only 66% as adequate. So uh, we did see some changes uh, with that in the state of Minnesota. Our guest today, as I indicated, was uh, Tom Hoverstead, and Tom's had a long career at the University of Minnesota at Wasika. So, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself to the folks listening to the podcast today, a little bit about what your official title is uh, currently at Wasika, and maybe give us a little bit of background of where you're from and how you ended up at Wasika? Okay, I can do that, Dave. Uh, Tom Hoverstead, uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Denison, Minnesota. Went to high school in Kenyon, uh, that area fairly close to Northfield, uh, between Northfield, Faribault, Cannon Falls, uh, kind of my stomping grounds when I grew up. I attended the University of Minnesota, got a degree in agronomy. And when I finished my four-year degree, there was an opening for someone to help do agronomic research at the Southern Research and Outreach Center here in Waseca, a university facility. And they wanted someone with a farm background to help out all the projects that needed to be done in that the Department of Agronomy was doing in Waseca, and they needed someone to help with that, uh, someone with some training and research and more than just uh, a farm hand. So I did that uh, just to advance my own career. I worked on a master's degree while I was working and finished that. Uh, oh, I don't know, 20 some years ago. So all my training is uh, from the University of Minnesota and I've got 40 years experience here in agronomic research at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. Well, just to mention a few names, uh, you are obviously have been there for many years. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jeff Gonzalez, I believe, was your advisor, but also uh, what are some of the other folks that did weed science work there? I think Bill Lucian, etc. You want to comment on yeah, some of those folks you work with? I go back to uh, Bob Anderson, Dick Behrens were weed scientists with both USDA and the department. Uh, worked very closely with Jeff Gonzalez. Um, he took me under his wing and we earned a degree in weed science doing that. Uh, 
kind of putting some economics to the trials that we do. A lot of farmers would look at our trials and they'd see something and they say, wow, that was very clean, but what's the cost associated with that? And and we started to look at that situation and I did some risk management work and involved some of the Department of uh, Ag Economics also and earned a degree with that. Now, Deblin uh, Sarangi, the new weed scientist, uh, we've worked together on some trials and I've worked with a lot of faculty in agronomy, soil science, plant pathology, and entomology. So had a lot of uh, opportunity to work with a number of scientists here at uh, Waseca. Well, certainly you've had an opportunity to see a lot of difference in terms of the the climate and, and the weather. I mean, all types of things that occurred in, in Minnesota. Uh, you know, we started the program talking a little bit about some dry situations this year, but uh, this isn't the first time uh, that we've experienced you know, dry soil conditions in, in the spring. Sometimes people get concerned and say, well, I remember the old days, 1988 or whatever might be. But uh, in your estimation, um, are we in dire straits in terms of an upcoming drought? Or is that really difficult to kind of compare uh, what we're happening to uh, occur at this uh, point in time in this year? Oh, I don't think it's unfair to compare where we've been in the past. When you do say dry years, a lot of people's brain goes straight to 1988. Everybody remembers it was hot and dry. Um, Other years that stand out, usually the cold, wet year of uh, 1993. That was the the year of uh, 060 or something like that, where a lot of a lot of farmers just uh, plowed their crops under because it was a failure and they could get some benefit from that. That was a long time ago. And everybody remembers the prevent plant year of 2013. So certain years do stick out in your memory. And we have good weather records here at the Research and Outreach Center. So I've got access to a nice database of weather and I can compare things that where we've been before and, and where we, of course, nobody knows where we're going, but, uh, how soon we could get there is what might be important. Now, I think the whole state, if you, a month ago, just a month ago, we went through a winter that was very wet, a lot of snow. And I, I think most everyone had adequate soil moisture. Now, all of a sudden, just a month later, you look at the drought monitor and they've got central Minnesota creeping up on drought. They didn't get a lot of rain. We had a lot of rain in May. So, this may, at least in the southern part of the state, probably up to maybe getting to the southern metro area close to the Twin Cities. We had six and a half inches of rain in May. That's two inches more than normal. And the way it came was problematic. A lot of rain in about 10 days. More ponding and saturated soils than I have seen in recent memory more replanting going on. So it was a problematic spring with too much water here. Now, all of a sudden, in two weeks, we've kind of gone to people asking for rain. We've been dry for three weeks. We've been very warm, about 10 degrees warmer than normal for two weeks. But on the other hand, I think our soil moisture is still adequate. I'm starting to see some of the earlier planted corn that's about V6, uh, more than a foot tall, is starting to green up and look like 
corn should look. Other areas where it went through saturated soils uh, still hasn't got deep rooted enough and some of those fields need to be evened out, but it's amazing what happens when they do start to get to some of that moisture. Now, I looked at our records of the Research and Outreach Center up in Morris. They didn't get even one inch of rain in May. So they probably are in a little more need of rain than we are. And the crop hasn't hit that period when it needs a lot of water yet. So we could use some rain. There's good subsoil moisture out there, but a quarter inch, uh, quarter to a half inch a week would be nice until we get to that period where we really need about an inch of rain. And that's what we average in June. So if we can get that, we should be good. Your soil type, you want to talk a little bit about that in the Waseke area at the Southern Research, Research and Outreach Center. Uh, you're looking at a soil that has higher organic matter, more clay content. You want to talk a little bit about that versus obviously farther north? Well, I always tell people we live in a unique part of the world agriculturally where more our, one of our bigger problems we deal with is too much water in the landscape. And that's unusual when you look at agricultural news across the world. Most places that raise crops, any rain they get, they consider a blessing. Often we, and we do, invest a lot of money to remove the excess water from some of our areas here in the southern part of the state. Poorly drained soils, deep, and they hold a lot of water. That in some years, and in recent years, has been very important. We've had a couple of summers where precipitation was less than normal, but our soil water holding capacity really can help with that situation. We've raised some pretty good crops on what a lot would consider pretty sparse rainfall, but just in time rains and adequate deep soil moisture produced good crops. And that's that's the part of the world we live in. You mentioned before that you're in some of the dry conditions the last two weeks. What are some current challenges uh, for this year's crop going forward if we are looking at the near-term forecast the next week or two, variable rain, maybe a lot of rain, are we going to have some problems with either soybean emergence, stand, uh, variability in weed control, herbicide activation? What are some current issues that uh, you might get calls about or are concerning as you look across the landscape? Well, things I've seen this year, um, in a year when we had to replant some, I've seen some of those replants when possibly went into a little bit of uh, soil that was a little wetter than you'd like. And some of those seed furrows didn't close up and then it turns very warm, very dry and you don't get good seed soil contact. You can see some problems with that. I've seen some soybeans planted uh, a little shallow and some of them germinated. Then we got about a half inch of rain two weeks later and some of them germinated two weeks later than the other. Now I've always said a week in the spring with soybeans is about a day in the fall. So you really won't notice that in the fall of the year, they'll, they'll mature fairly close to the same time, but we've seen those issues and it sure would be nice to get a better distribution of the rainfall we've had instead of getting it all at once and then going through three weeks uh, of dry weather. What are you seeing for uh, weeds in terms of weed emergence uh, control? We talked about some of those other issues that <clears throat> have to do with the problems with 
activation, getting herbicides into soil solution, um, concerns that you might have in those areas? Well, herbicides applied, and we really rely on a lot of soil active herbicides. That's something that we've learned over the last 20 years that uh, we can't count on just post-emergence. We need some help a lot with a lot of the species we're dealing with now. So soil applied herbicides have become very important to Minnesota, Minnesota farmers. Now those products work best when you put them on and you get good soil moisture, good activity, that's how they work their best. Where they work their worst is when you put them on and you don't get any soil moisture. So there's some of those that maybe aren't performing at peak capacity, but it's amazing how well they do even under conditions where we don't get normal rainfall, maybe a little bit below normal rainfall, they still work pretty good. So there's certainly still value in using those soil active chemistries. Is there any rule of thumb of what you've seen over the years in terms of amount of rainfall that you think is adequate in some of those situations? And I understand it's going to vary a little bit by soil type and geography, but uh, what's your observation? I do have a rule of thumb on that. A good activating rain depends on how dry the soil is. If the rain you received wets the entire profile, you know, from from top to bottom, there's always moisture down deeper. And if you get a tenth of an inch of rain and it creates that profile where you really can't tell the difference, that's a good activating rain. Sometimes it takes a half inch of rain to do that. So my my rule of thumb is if it what's the whole profile, it's a good activating rainfall. Excellent. Let's move over and talk a little bit about this year, uh, 2023, in terms of some research project emphasis. Uh, what are some different things that you have out in the field that are going uh, maybe some things that are continuous or similar that you might do from year to year, but you want to describe, give us an overview of some of those various projects that you're involved with. Well, let's start with one. We're getting a lot of interest in biologicals. Um, some people call them naturals, I guess. There's a number of organizations looking at some biological organism that you can add to the soil, mostly to try to make nitrogen more available. Not sure how they all work. Some soil microbes uh, are being applied with the thought that maybe we can make nitrogen use more efficient. It would be a way to maybe cut nitrogen rates a little bit if we're using these biologicals and they make nitrogen more available how they work. Uh, I'm not all familiar with all the uh, chemistry and the physiology behind it, but there's a lot of interest in that. So we've got some companies uh, interested in having us apply some biologicals, not only seed treatment, uh, some applied wet at early herbicide application times, some applied as late as tassel time. So there's a lot of interest in that. That seems to be where people are making some investments now. Weed control, there's always new things. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of new chemistry lately, but there's been a lot of ways to make products that uh, make good tank mix partners, make uh, a product a little bit more compatible where it maybe picks up a certain weed. 
So we've been looking at a lot of new premixes. And of course, the new uh, traits certainly have uh, warranted a lot of our research, uh, both in list and extend. And we've got a nice project with Ryan Miller in extension looking at, uh, I've never seen antagonism from herbicides as much as I've seen with the new growth regulators and grass control, specifically products we use that we've become used to for volunteer corn control and soybeans, uh, select and assure and post and fusion. Those products, we'd not had the opportunity to mix them with growth regulators because we never used growth regulators in soybeans. And we're finding that they are very antagonistic. So uh, we're doing some research on how we can still use those products for volunteer corn control in the new trait systems for soybeans. I believe in addition to that, uh, you have protocols that are from some of the manufacturers that we do in multiple locations around the state of Minnesota. Uh, those are things that where you looked at economics, looked at certain things like you know pigweed control per se, grass and so forth. Are, are they still in the mix as part of your effort and research? Yes, we've done that as a group across the University of Minnesota, people involved in weed control. So what's marketed to soybeans and corn in the southern part of the state, uh, that's where we try to help out. We look at several sites and we can take advantage of not only geographical differences, but uh, some weed species differences. So we put together a list from the industry, what they are marketing to corn and soybean growers, try to put them in our trials and get a good read on how they're performing geographically and with respect to different weed species. So we've been doing that for 20, 30 years now. Pretty good system. And we've got a very good record on what's going on with those products over the years. I believe on June 20th of this year, correct me, uh, there will be a an open house again, uh, a field day at Waseca. People will yes, have we've got our agronomy field tour, and we are just in the getting ready to put that on. I'll be at the weed plots that we just talked about. Uh, look, we all have the opportunity to look at what is marketed and how they're performing right here at the Waseca location. I'll also kind of highlight uh, some of that work that is going on with respect to antagonism and and grass control and volunteer corn control in the enlist and extend system. I can discuss both of them. We'll have Jeff Coulter here talking about corn and all the issues we saw. Replant corn, interplanted corn in the fields that uh, had some wet holes in it. What's the prospects for that crop to uh, make it to maturity? Those type of things. Uh, Dan Kaiser is going to talk about some of the biologicals that they've seen from the soil department side of it. Jeff Vetch is going to talk about drainage and cover crops. He's got a uh, site where they can monitor the drainage water and what are cover crops doing to that, uh, not only quantity, but any nutrients that may be leaving the landscape. And Melissa Wilson is researching all aspects of manure application, and she'll have uh, a summary of some of the work she's doing around the state. Well, it's a well-rounded program. I believe it starts uh in the morning on the 20th, uh, open to the public, uh, ag professionals uh, uh, and farmers alike. Yes, we start about eight, uh, leave the yard here at 8.30, go on tour and get back and have a lunch. And you've got the afternoon 
to get all your work done. That uh, seems to help a lot of people. They have about a half a day and then most of them are ag professionals. Those, and they need to go on some service calls and they need the afternoon to get that done, but they can come and see what we've got going on in the morning. Well, good opportunity to ask questions and get some answers. Uh, finally, I'd, I'd like to finish a little bit with your perspective. Um, you have a long tenure there at, at Wasika. Um, what are some of the things that have changed? And obviously machinery has changed here, but we think about technology, but we're also talking about weed species shifts, uh, resistance or particular weed problems that have come about and that are still with us. Any, any comment, first of all, from a weed science standpoint, uh, what are we seeing in terms of, uh, shifts and, and populations or, or concerns, uh, either we've done a good job or we uh, have difficulty? Well, I think the great experiment we've done over the last 30 years is uh, how we saw when we relied on glyphosate, uh, the active ingredient in Roundup, became available for use during the cropping season some 25, 30 years ago, and it was adopted very very widely across both corn and soybeans. And all of a sudden, it didn't take long, we started changing our pigweed species. Now Roundup's pretty good on pigweed, or glyphosate, excuse me, is pretty good on the pigweed families, but it was very weak on water hemp. And as I go across the countryside now, if I see a pigweed, it's rare. It was a very common weed that we everyone dealt with uh, if you talk to someone older than I am, pigweed uh, brings back a lot of memories. Most of the people younger than me don't even know much about pigweed, but they deal with water hemp. And we're doing that in some other areas too. It wasn't long ago, if I was driving around our landscape and I saw a barnyard grass in the crop, in the plots or somewhere growing in the field, I would say slam on the brakes. I got to see that. Is that really barnyard grass growing in the crop? Now it doesn't even get attention anymore. It's it, something that I see very regularly. Crab grass too. Another one is woolly cup grass. It probably is a little bit later emerger. It does well in warm conditions. I know uh, barnyard grass, crab grass, warm season grasses, probably started coming after we used a lot of glyphosate. So we've got those things coming on. And like we experienced with water hemp, uh, as we rely on one mode of action, we're going to find some of these that have a way to get around that. And it's easy to explain with the grasses, barnyard grass, crab grass. They come later after some of our post-emergence materials no longer have activity. Well, any last comments on anything that we didn't uh, touch on, Tom, uh, in, in situations with that or recommendations you have back to uh, Minnesota growers, uh, so to speak, whether it's involving rotation or concerns about resistance, even with soil applied herbicides. But are there other things if you were uh, in the director's chair, so to speak, uh, on this great Minnesota oh, I, landscape? You know that what? You do? I, I'd have to say I'm very proud of Minnesota farmers for learning and adapting. When post-emergence chemicals became pro very uh, popular, 
we were really a state that has been in tune to getting the crop planted. When it's spring of the year, we know we got to get planted. We're on the northern edge of the Corn Belt, and we really focused on planting. When a number of very good post-emergence herbicides became available, of course they were adopted here because we could concentrate on planting, worry about spraying later. Well, we found out the Pratt Falls with that philosophy, and now a lot of our growers find applying pre-emergence chemistry to their crop just as important as planting. And that uh, that is something that they figured out in a few years, and I'm kind of proud of how they figured that out. Well, thank you, Tom. I think that you've been a great part of that uh, in educational uh, needs and so forth and providing that information. Certainly uh, a lot of cutting-edge research at, at Wasika. And I know that you are a good source of information, take a lot of farmer calls, a lot of uh, consult, consultation one-on-one. So we do really appreciate uh, your service here at the University of Minnesota. So with that, we'd like to thank, again, uh, Tom Hoverstead, uh, research scientist at the University of Minnesota uh, Southern Research and Outreach Center at Wasika. And thanks for your time today, Tom, here at the University of Minnesota podcast, Minnesota CropCast. And we look forward to seeing you down the road, Tom, and especially here on the uh, on the 20th of June at the field day. So thanks again, Tom. You're very welcome. Thank you.